Welcome to the most valuable fucking show you're going to listen to all week. The market doesn't give a shit about your feelings. I had to unlearn being an asshole because that's how I was trained. You have to create a space for others to be vulnerable, and that starts by you being vulnerable yourself. This is Unfuck My Business. Welcome to the Unfuck My Business show. I am your host today, Chris Delaney, joined by my co-host today, Robin Sales. How are you, ma'am? I'm super awesome. Perfect. Today, we have an interesting and exciting interview for you. We get to interview the grumpy old bastard of tech himself. He operates as our chief strategy officer here at Unfuck My Business, and he's also the guy that you pay to tell you why you're wrong sometimes. But anyways, let me give you this alphabet soup of a background because Jinx has a very technical background and expertise. Uh, But Chris Jenkins has more than 12 years of experience working in healthcare technology, including with rural healthcare providers in Florida's CHCA. I said rural, right? Score one. Uh, He was an EDI analyst for WebMD, Ivins, and Caremedic, and was part of the transition team assisting providers onboarding the new EMR requirements in 2003. In addition, he's an expert on HIPAA compliance, integrations and automation, CMS requirements, and several PMSs. Somebody knows what that means. Including medical manager, intergy, centricity, and logician. I say all that to say this guy has a giant brain and a very big mouth, but also a very deep heart. And I'm very excited to bring Jinx to the table. What's going on, my friends? <laughs> What's happening, people? I think all those are accurate. Are they? Well, I hope at so. least the giant mouth part. <laughs> oh, okay, good. I thought you were talking about me reading your bio. I was like, I hope so. Somebody gave it to me for your website. So, <laughs> so I know you as Chris. Obviously, the, the listeners and everybody in the community knows you as Jinx. And so I feel like that's a good place to start because I feel like there's really the two, the two individuals, one known as Chris Jenkins, and then there's Jinx. And so I think I read Chris Jenkins' profile and his bio. You know, Kind of tell me about Jinx. Tell me about your path, who you are as a person. Maybe uh, we can go from there. Well, it, you know, it's it's kind of funny. Chris Jenkins, a little bit of trivia. Chris Jenkins is the 23rd most common first and last name combination for males in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as such, it's remarkably difficult to brand it personally by my name in any meaningful way. But also it means that I get a little more latitude in that I'm going to be hard to show up. You know, if somebody writes a, a blog post about why I'm an asshole... Uh, you know, good luck trying to get it to rank for Chris Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jinx is a nickname that I've had since uh, I think I was a kid and uh, lots of variations on that. You know, some of my friends would call me things like Jinxy Cat or, you know, some kind of variation. And um, that always felt more like my personal side of things, which was separate from my more formal business side of things. Um, but over the last, you know, eight to 10 years, those lines have gotten blurred a lot. So a lot more people in the business world see Jinx these days, I think. And I, and I feel like the Jinx part of you, and this is interesting because a lot of people would hear your bio and kind of the stuff that you do. I know that you uh, you operate mostly as CTO, CDO kind of role for many companies. And so being an entrepreneur and also the background that you've had, one of the things that you and I have connected on is a level of life experience that's forced us to be very resourceful and creative in our life. We both believe in relationships, but real, true, authentic relationships where you can both see the good and the bad. (laughs) But how do you really play the role of being this technologist, really technical, and also being this wildly creative individual? How did you integrate those two things together? Well, it's funny because, you know, I, I grew up 
for the vast majority of my my childhood under the national poverty line. You know, um, a lot of people talk about you know they struggled growing up uh, financially. I we had periods of time where there was no lights, no water. You know, uh, lived literally on the the generosity of others. Um, I I still don't know how my parents held it together, and. You know, poverty forces creativity. It forces innovation. You know, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to get um, that new Hasbro toy or whatever. You know, you're using sticks and strings to tie that up and and create something for yourself <laughs> for your own entertainment. Sure. You know, yep. uh, and and in a time when a lot of my peers were getting to you know experience like home computers for the first time, when that really was starting to become a common thing. That just wasn't there for us. We were way behind that curve. And so I, I really wasn't exposed to technology at all until like way later in my late teens, early adulthood, you know? And it was interesting. And like I, I found I really had a knack for it because I've got an analytical brain that understands structures and systems and how they all work together. But having that background where I was always forced to be creative, just program my mind to operate in that specific way, you know, I remember somebody talking about people who sort of intuitively find the AD connection, right? You know, if a, if a problem is A and the steps to solve it are B, C, and D, some people just jump from A to D. And I've always been that way. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I cut out the intermediary steps. I see what the solution is and I go right for it. And on one hand, you know, in the first 10 to 12 years of my tech or of my technology career, my corporate technology career, that caused a lot of conflict because I'm this very unpolished person. Um, they constantly had to tell me what I was allowed to say and what I wasn't allowed to say in professional correspondence. <laughs> they were scared to bring me into meetings because they never knew what I was going to come out with. But I was also a top performer consistently. I produced, you know, and so I kind of found that if you are willing to to meet them halfway, you know, okay, there's certain words we're not going to allow you to say in a meeting, Chris. Fuck is not allowed. What about <laughs> shit? Is shit okay? You know, if you meet them halfway, then you actually will get a lot of latitude assuming that you are such an asset to the organization that it's painful for them to not have you. And that's mm. kind of, I think, where those things blended. The creativity allowed me to produce or perform better than a lot of my peers. And that bought me some grace for the unpolished street side of myself, so to speak. I, I do think I'm noticing that there is something that informs folks who had to spend some time drinking powdered milk and eating government cheese. Ooh, I know what both of those taste like. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I stopped drinking milk and cereal when it was powdered milk because it was so gross. <laughs> it's gross. Um, and so I, I think once you've been there you fight like hell to not ever be back there again. And yep. so mm-hmm. it informs uh, a sense of drive, I think. It's not the only thing that can form that sense of drive, but but given that we have some similarities in our backgrounds, the three of us, you know, in being in those points where you're like, I'm going to do everything that I can to not ever be here again. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I... When I worked at a newspaper, I got yelled at by my editor because he said the word fuck ton in a meeting with the corporate execs <laughs> at the big fancy paper that owned our little dinky alternative paper. And he's like, God damn it, Robin, I said fuck ton in the meeting. And it's all your fault. I'm like, what are you going to do? 
I think so, a lot of people who know me, who've known me for, you know, some amount of time might even be surprised to know that my core monthly expenses have not changed in the last 12 years, despite the fact that my earnings have, have changed significantly. And it's just because I have that mindset in the back of my head up, oh, got to make sure that I'm keeping it lean, got to make sure that I can survive a downturn, you know? Yeah, I don't I don't think you unlearn that. I think you reapply it. You know, I that's been the experience for me. It sounds like it's been the experience for the two of you as well. You just you reapply that skill set in different ways. So I, I want to dive more into your creative background because I find that some of the creatives that I've worked with who are in a more analytical or more technical space visualize process differently than we might expect them to. For instance, I have one client who's a programmer in the Northwest for companies like Microsoft and Oracle. He's writing big code for big projects, but he looks at that code the way a composer looks at music on a sheet of paper, right? It's not X's and O's for him or ones and zeros, right? And so I, I wonder how you look at process and code and, and what the visual comparisons are from, from your creative brain. I think one of the reasons why I hire senior software engineers instead of being a senior software engineer is that to me, code has always been a language that I'm trying to use to translate a visual process in my head versus, you know, people who have a better understanding of abstract concepts of classes and systems and all the rest of that who are just working from a purely analytical perspective. I write in PHP, which, you know, a lot of people put down because primarily PHP is a, a, a language that's run in order. I'm going to try and keep this to layman terms here instead of it just all sort of operating in a stateless fashion. Um, like PHP <laughs> is executed step one, step two, step three, step four. And in my head, I have a visual thing that looks like that. And so like mm. it, it aligns well for me that way, you know? And in, in business processes as well, you know, I, I have that picture in my head of the little boxes moving down the assembly line, you know? Um, and, and that's a, like a really metaphorical thing, you know, because mostly we're talking about people processes, not like manufacturing processes. Um, but I'm really looking at it from the aspect of, you know, how is this information or how is this piece of work moving from one place to another? And, and it's really visual, like an assembly line in my head. In some ways, I think that makes me not as good at like documenting perhaps or, or conveying some of that information. And I'm, and I'm glad to have partners that help me translate that sort of abstract concept into something a little more usable to everyone else. But it also, because I'm looking at it that way, because I'm visually analyzing it, things that are broken in the process stick out to me visually. You know, mm. I'm seeing where the broken part is. And that's kind of hard to describe if you don't think that way. But I know for any graphic designer out there, if you've ever looked at a layout and there's one element that's like two pixels off, it's the same thing. For you, it's huge. Other people might not see it at all. But for you, you see it's broken right there. So I, I hear from you a level of excellence that you see. But also, I think one of the things you were talking about before, that informing and the resourcefulness, which is super interesting, is I think that when you have to be resourceful, especially at a young age, I think a few things happen. One, you either move closer towards relationships or away from them completely. The second thing is, is I think that you get so used to getting in the moment to solve problems that you see emerging patterns much faster than everybody else. 
So when you were saying you were saying A to D, I think that's the other thing too, is because in our world, you know, if you're listening and you you did go through those challenging times, you know, that decision is between you and having food or you and having to do some things that we take for granted. So, you know, taking that creativity, that resourcefulness and, and kind of tying it into, you know, your work makes a whole lot of sense because you said they can't fire me if I'm their top performer, which is an edge, um, which is super, super interesting. But there still is that edge of the grittiness of the, of the individual. Well, it's, you know, I mean, one of the things that I kind of pride myself on is that I'm able to stay really, really calm, cool and collected under extreme pressure. And mm. I, I'm good at making good decisions on the fly. Generally, mind you, there are times when mm. I don't make good decisions, <laughs> uh, usually involving lots of alcohol. But in more instances than not, you know, when, when I'm looking at like uh, um, business things or, or life things even, I've always been really good at quickly evaluating a situation and making a decision, even under stress, that carries us forward. And, you know, that time that I spent between 16 and 20 when I was essentially, you know, a street rat living a life of crime. Sometimes those are life and death decisions. You know, I've had guns pointed in my face and had to make a determination for myself. Is this person just flexing on me or am I really at risk of being shot here? Because sometimes the right answer is to look them in the eye and dare them. And you've got to know beyond a certainty, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt when it's really, truly a life or death decision. And so most other decisions that I'm faced seem way less stressful than some of the things that I've ha had in my past where other people are potentially melting down in that moment. Yeah, a, a, a website URL issue doesn't seem so critical <laughs> after no. you've had a gun in your face, I can imagine. Like, oh, it's okay, we can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't recommend a life of crime for anyone, but as a starting point for my career, it certainly gave me some skills that helped along the way. <laughs> some people might argue that the corporate world may provide a life of crime. <laughs> that's salacious. I didn't qualify for that. <laughs> so one of the things that drew me to you Chris was when I met you at Entrepreneurial Social Club as we've talked about plenty of times you uh, you struck me as somebody who had a level of experience in both what you did but also in life because you talked about it but it wasn't just from a place of well let me put it this way I watched people get butt hurt and really upset when you provided actionable advice to them and it spoke to really their inability to control their emotion as opposed to the actual action required. So it cuts to the core and I like that a lot. And so what I would like to know is if you're going to distill down your philosophy on business and entrepreneurship, which is more of a, you know, what do you stand for in this and your, your view on this in one sentence, what would it be? The market doesn't give a shit about your feelings. Mm. Amen to that. And I mean, it just doesn't, you know, you know, we, we talk about life experience. By the time I was 30, I had been to jail. I had gotten out of jail, gotten married, had two kids, had a business that I lost, tried to form another one. That one failed too. Um, squeezed my way into technology. I delivered pizza. I'd cooked. I'd worked day labor. I'd worked in factories. I, you know, I had done whatever it took to survive in the moment. And, and you know, as a person, right, that's the market of our lives, right? Um, the world, the universe, reality doesn't give a shit about your feelings either. You know, you either produce and you get food and you procreate, and you pass your genetic material on, or you don't, you know. And I really like the, the approach that evolutionary biology, or maybe not evolutionary biology, but genetics, really, the concept of genetics and evolution, right? Your genes don't care about you individually. They're just trying to propagate. And all of the things that we evolved to get good at are things that help your genes propagate. 
But other than that, nothing cares, you know? People starve to death every day, and the vast majority of the world doesn't give a shit about that. Why would anyone think that business is going to be nicer than that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a harsh reality, you know, especially when we grow up with people getting participation trophies and a lot of other things. So I think that could be a conversation from their time. So let me ask you this question, too. How do you balance the creative and technical aspects of your business or the aspects of your roles in business life and relationships? I think I'm a fan of the idea of how you do anything is how you do everything. And I think those three core areas kind of fulfill that. But how do you balance creative and technical in those roles in each part of each part of life, relationship, businesses? I wish there was a really simple answer to that question, but there's just not. You know, I've I've gotten lost in those roles multiple times and and had them wildly imbalanced. I mean, over the last 10 years, I've been creative in business, but my actual creative side, you know, my the writer side of me and the 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 painter side of me um, have been wildly neglected. You know, it's we're all we we tend to shift focus based on what our survivometer says is the important thing right now, you know. And especially when you're building a business from the ground up, and I mean, literally from scratch, I made 29,000 my first year in business as a married dude with two kids, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So like you lose that stuff. And one of the things that I've been really trying hard to focus on over the last year or two is bringing those things into balance because it's, it's, we can be really predatory with our own skill set internally. And I, I don't think people like really realize that. And not just predatory, but exploitative, which is a weird thing to say that you're exploiting yourself, right? But my business mind has been exploiting my creative mind for decades mm. now, right? Without really giving me the creative outlet, right? It's just going, you've got a creative brain here. Let's go ahead and use this. What's What's the way that you can do that, you know? And then the creative side has never done a good job of exploiting the business side, you know, and, and actually like monetizing any of the more like artistic creative stuff that I do, you know? So like really, if you look at those aspects of self and think of them as a relationship, my relationships have, have rarely been healthy. So I think, you know, starting to consciously make time for both has been a way that I've been moving towards balancing that and, and creating a healthier relationship in my own head between those aspects of myself. Love what you stated in there, that duality between the two voices and the two minds, between the, you said, the, the technical and the creative and creating the space. And that's a great way to explain that. And so there's a, a, a bunch of thoughts I have here too. I mean, you sit on boards of businesses, you advise emerging tech startups, and you also operate as a chief digital officer of a, of a very uh, fast-growing agency, right? That's dealing with some pretty, pretty private stuff. So the question I have for you is, how do you create the space to be wildly outspoken and still progress in business? You'd mentioned people thought of you as a wild card. Like, how did that continue to grow for you? Well, on one hand, I mean, a lot of personal growth has had to happen. And in every business relationship that I've had, I've probably at one time or another hit a wall where someone's like, whoa, okay, look, that's, you know, I get it. That's you, but that's just not good for us. So <laughs> we can't have that, you know? Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's reasonable, right? Market doesn't just give a shit about your feelings. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, my current CEO has had moments where she's like, you know, Chris, you know, I love you. We have a great relationship and I love you for who you are. And I'm not trying to censor you in any way, but this kind of conversation, you know, where you're really, cause I, you know, I, 
I and can be argumentative on social media. I know this might no come way. To shock no way. <laughs> but, you know, she's like, this conversation is just a little too aggressive. And I don't think that that's a good representation of our brand, you know. And for me, that's fair. I mean, any of those business yeah. relationships, there, there has to be that give and take. But at the same time, I think most people are so worried that letting some, you know, negative per se aspect of themselves show up in public is going to hurt mm. their business prospects mm -hmm. um, that, that they never show out. You know what I mean? And so for me, I, I would much rather find the boundaries and borders and go, okay, cool. This is acceptable. This isn't whatever, you know, that gives me maximum freedom. Whereas, you know, some people never test those boundaries or borders at all. And, and they're, they're locked in their own cells, much less, you know, what somebody else might've put on them. And I think that's so crucial to think about is the idea of you said, I operate with complete freedom because you pretty much paved the way for that freedom to happen. There was a price to pay there. There was the conflict and the other things that happened. But it brings up another question, which is, and we've had this discussion before too, vulnerability as a tactic is used often, especially in today's world where copywriters write things for people and it's all about exploiting the emotions of things. How do you uh, handle or think about the idea of vulnerability, especially when it comes to the words that you write, the conversations that you have and the things that you're involved in? How do you lead with vulnerability? One of the things that I think is so critical, and, and a few folks have, have touched on it, I've got a, a chapter in my book where, where I really talk about it at length. You have to create a space for others to be vulnerable, and that starts by you being vulnerable yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when I go out there and I talk about some of the fucked up shit that's happened to me over the years, or some of my own deep problems, things that I wrestle with, you know, I mean, it's, I, 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 one of my chapters, you know, talks very honestly about my relationship with alcohol, which is not always healthy. And, you know, I, I got some really great feedback on it. But one of the commenters is like, I really enjoyed this, but I do want to make sure that I'm not reading the literary equivalent of snuff porn here, you know, um, <laughs> which I thought was to me, I, I feel like I nailed it. You know, like if, if I'm causing that sort of a visceral reaction, I, I think that, yeah. that, that means that I'm on track, right? when you are so willing to be open to that level, you know, vulnerability is a tactic. I mean, sure. Okay. The, the tactic is I'm trying to engender a relationship that's based on trust and vulnerability is a, a, a currency that says, okay, we can do transactions of this level. We can operate with a, this level of trust because I'm willing to show you completely who I am. Now, in some cases, you know, I've, I've had people who don't want to do business with me based on my politics, for instance, right? That's fine. I, I don't feel like that's a loss at all. You know, that that's actually a sort of a benefit from being that open is that you disqualify people who aren't going to be good partners and good customers, you know, but the relationships that you do make when you're that open, they're just that much stronger because they're based on a level of trust that most people don't have. Jinx, would you agree that when it comes to vulnerability as a tactic, Intention plays a huge role. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, it's that phrase sounds cynical. Yeah, but I'm but I'm not offended by it at all, right? Because vulnerability is a tactic to exploit. Okay, that's fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. vulnerability as a tactic to create a trust based relationship where you can be open to a higher level than what most people can. I mean, vulnerability is a tactic. Okay, cool. That was my tactic and it worked. We now have a higher level trust relationship. That's not a bad thing. So, you know, 
making a cynical read on that on that phrase, you know, I, I see why it makes sense. And we certainly see that kind of exploitation out there. But I, I'm not offended by it at all. Good. Yeah. And I just I think I wanted to just get that differentiator out there, you know, that like if your intentions are good, who cares what tactic you use? You know, if your intentions are good and you follow up with, you know, actions that are um, focused on community building and to borrow your phrase that you use all the time, like I think as long as you're the rising tide that's lifting all the boats around you, then then use every tactic at your disposal. You know, and I've I've certainly seen you deploy some fairly controversial tactics <laughs> that, that work extraordinarily well. You are a community builder uh, extraordinaire in my experience. Has that always been the case for you? Have you found that community sort of always build up around you? Not, no, it's definitely not always been the case. No, I mean, I, I think what most people don't really know about me, if there's like one sort of secret or whatever that, that I think a lot of people would find surprising, it's that I'm really an introvert, a deeply mm. introvert. Um, I, I am worn out very quickly by having to engage in public big parties. I am always the guy who finds a comfy chair in the corner close to the bar. Uh, and, and I only like over the last, you know, decade or so, a lot of people have seen me out in public and seen me in events and all the rest of that. But realistically, it, you know, I have my networking group downtown on Thursdays, an occasional event on a Saturday, maybe. And I, I had a private event at my house every other Friday night for some of my close friends. And that's, that's about it, you know. And during COVID, this whole time here, since most of those things have gone away, I've been basically by myself you know, in my house for that entire time. And honestly, I'm very comfortable with that. I think the big thing that changed for me was getting on the internet in the late 90s and discovering communities and then finding some value in communities that were text-based only, where my writing was the only way that they knew me. And my writing is one of the best ways that I communicate. You know, I'm, I'm an okay talker, orator, whatever you like for that. Um, but my writing is really where I've always been most eloquent and that resonates with people. And so in digital communities, which are often heavily text-based as well, that's, that's a real strength. So I didn't, I didn't discover that until, you know, geez, probably, I don't know, at least my late twenties that I really had a gift for this. And I, I built up multiple like online communities in the following 10 years. And, you know, I, I guess that's it. I don't want to meander too much here, but it, it certainly didn't happen overnight. It was just something that I kind of surprisingly discovered about myself. Well, and I think you've touched on that there's different ways to be in a community. There's different ways to interact in a community. I think people who are good community builders, communities will naturally gravitate to them. And so I think about last Christmas Eve when you're at my house, I throw, I typically don't think I'm going to get to do it this year, but typically we throw a huge party on Christmas Eve and I literally invite everyone that I know. Like if I met you this year, you're invited. And so Jinx showed up last year and um, it's when I, like when I close my eyes and envision you on my back deck by the fire, you're like a rogue knight holding court. Like eventually everyone makes their way over to you to hear you spin a tale, you know? And so it doesn't mean that you're commanding the center of attention, but everyone's going to make their way to you. And, uh, and so when I think of you sort of building communities around you, that's what I think of. It's like everyone's going to experience you eventually 
because you're you're sort of you've created this space where you're sort of impossible to ignore. Good, <laughs> bad, or indifferent. <laughs> That's that's been very good for me from a business perspective. I mean, you know, building up a profile, building up a, a personality. And and I remember when I first saw Kevin Harrington do a keynote speech somewhere, uh, I think actually at Nova 535 down in St. Pete. When he left, I, uh, you know, I, I like chased after him for a minute and I was like, hey, Kevin. And he turned around and I could see how tired he was. And and I was like, uh, I just wanted to say thanks for coming out. It was really inspirational, blah, blah, blah. blah. And he's like, you know, hey, hey, thanks. Cool. He turns around, he walks away. You know, a few years later, I was doing a keynote in a big <laughs> event and I was leaving that event and I was exhausted and somebody came running up to me in the parking lot, you know, and, and played that same scenario out. And I like had that moment of deja vu where I was like, oh God, this is what he felt like. And I was that person over there, you know, the transition to being a public personality really was shocking to me, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I never expected any of that. Now I worked for it. I saw that it was giving my business benefit. I was absolutely like moving in that direction as a tactic, but I was always wildly surprised that it worked because, you know, I was the short fat kid. I, I, I've got deep, deep rooted insecurities being out in public, being a public face it, it is still something that I'm getting used to. But once I, once I realized like how good it was and how critical it was that I'd be in this place where I was positioned well to build relationships in order to advance my business goals, that became a, a targeted focus for me. And I think that brings up another interesting point too. I mean, there's this, you've had this discussion around the two voices, the two minds that you've been talking about. The idea of, you said earlier about the book that you were writing and somebody telling you that it was like the illiterate version of snuff porn. And it was this whole idea of you're writing for you, I would assume, right? There's no real commercialization that you're trying to create. From my understanding, you're just trying to write to write. So it becomes interesting. There's really two questions willing to be asked right there. One is the dealing with imposter syndrome. Have you felt that before? And the second thing is when you're dealing with that, how do you, how do you navigate the waters of being radically open with people and being able to work through a response like they gave you about that part where you're deeply vulnerable and still just create for you? And really, you know, stay on track let's, with let's that. Stop right there and just back up about 30 seconds and re-ask that question. You got garbled and I didn't hear it. Okay. So the first question was dealing with the idea of the imposter syndrome that comes up. We'll start there, actually. So the, I have two questions for you. One is going to be the imposter syndrome because you've held these crazy, you know, good positions. You've built businesses. Um, and it sounds like you, you, you obviously have a, a huge life story. Imposter syndrome, how does it show up for you? How do you deal with it? Well, in, in, in referencing the book, right, what a lot of people don't understand is that most of the stuff that I'm writing in the book are just sort of revisions of essays that I've been writing for years, but that I never share anywhere. Um, I have a little folder in Drive called Writing Shit, and you know I'll be inspired in something, I'll just go hammer something, and it's deeply personal. It's like letters to yourself that you never intend to send anywhere, you know. And so now bringing that to the surface, and, and I'm finally getting some feedback on it. And people are really having this strong visceral reaction to it. That's powerful to me because, you know, I've, I've written all kinds of things. I know I'm a good writer per se, but I've never actually completed the exercise of writing a book, even though I've started it like 50 times. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that when it really comes down to digging out this stuff inside myself and putting it out there on display... I, I'm scared to death that people are going to be like, are you fucking kidding me? This is what you have to say, you know? 
And, and that's a very difficult thing in development, especially with developers who learn code on their own without like getting a comp sci degree or working in corporate environments or things like that. We never know how good of a programmer we are ever, you know? And so like they have pair programming and peer review and things along that line that you do now as part of like corporate development groups or even some startups or whatever, which help you get past that. But the scariest moment of your life is when you go write something and open source it and put it out to the community and get feedback on what you've done, because that sort of sets a baseline for how good of a developer you are. And at least 50 people or so are going to be like, you're the shittiest developer alive. You should not even be writing a code. Your code will kill people, you know? <laughs> so that's a, And I, I deal with so many junior developers who are, you know, up and comers in startups and things along that line. And I see it over and over and over again. And it's hilarious to me because I'm looking at their code as sort of the seasoned guy now. And I'm like, yep, that's all. That's really well structured. Nicely done. It's elegant. It's this or that, you know? And for some of these folks, it's the first time they're getting outside validation of their work. That's a, it's a hard, hard thing to, to deal with. And in the entrepreneurial space at large, I think most people who are trying to start a business or trying a startup or something along that line, if it's their first one, imposter syndrome is like your daily terror. You have to put this out there. You have to communicate a value offering and, oh my God, people, what if they don't like my value offering? Uh, oh, I have to actually sell this. I have to actually ask for money. You know, what, what do I do if, if I ask for money and, and they laugh at me and tell me I'm full of shit? That, that's like a huge, a, a constant terror, I think, for most first-time business owners. But with experience and with peer review and being open to the market's feedback, knowing that the market doesn't give a shit about your feelings, you, know, <laughs> you, you start to get a sense for how to view your work objectively and then compare it to other people in some meaningful way. It becomes less of a fear. I'm going to ask you the question that came up for me, and it was actually more of a relationship-driven question recently. And I think it's a really good segue into what you just said about feedback, which I think is important. But what's the one thing you secretly wish someone would say to you that would be deeply meaningful to you? I mean, realistically, there's probably a list, all things considered. <laughs> uh, for all my grumpiness, I think, you know, the people who know me closest know that I'm, you know, gooey in the middle. And not just because of my uh, corpulent build, but uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> being validated is such a common universe, universal human need. And I absolutely am as prone to seeking validation on all fronts as everyone else is. Perhaps not so much for my attractiveness or physical appearance anymore. You know, at, at this age, I'm far less concerned about that than I was in my 20s. But, you know, the validity of my work and the validity of my message, the validity of, of my, my uh, passions and beliefs, mm. uh, this, this feedback that I'm getting as I write is, is supremely critical or important to me. And, and you know, I, I think one of the most incredible things that ever could happen is I complete this book and I put it out there and somebody comes up to me and says, I read this and it saved my life. You know what I mean? Um, mm. Like being validated in that way, knowing that the price of the pain that I've paid can help someone else, that would be just huge to me. I and mean, that's, that's deeply meaningful stuff. I mean, that's getting into a sense of purpose. 
And you know, I want to dive into all this stuff too, because I mean, the goal here is to get people to get to understand you, and because you're prominent within our community. But there's so much to know and understand, and to be around you is to know that if you go deep enough and, and focus on having that conversation, if you can work through the feedback that you might provide, that doesn't feel good sometimes for people. I know that's happened to me before. We've talked about it. Like we've we've one of the things I like about you. Uh, well, one of the things I love about you, I should say, is that you're able to provide thoughtful disagreement. And I think thoughtful disagreement is one of those things that so many people ignore when it comes to that sense of validation and reflection. It's one thing for somebody to walk up to you and give you a compliment. It's another thing to have a disagreement and be able to walk away from that conversation and feel closer as a result versus further apart. And I think that's one of the things that really strikes me about you. And that leads me to this question, which is, uh, what's the hardest thing you've had to learn as a leader of people? I know you went through some challenging times this year especially with, with everything going on because you work with large teams. Uh, but what's the hardest lesson you've had to learn as a leader of people? My upbringing, my father was in the military and is a very authoritarian person. He went from military to law enforcement. So if you have a, a, an archetype in your head of what kind of person that is, that's probably accurate. And he had a very yes sir, no sir, hard line approach to discipline. And I found you know, that as an adult, I mirrored that. And when you're in the military, when you are in charge of troops and all the rest of that, in the course of battle, you probably don't have time to consider the emotional well-being of the people that you're giving commands to. You know, there's a reason why that system of leadership exists and, and it has its place. In business, I think we really screw up sometimes because we, or me, I have taken more authoritarian hardline stances in the past in, in leading people and didn't really account for the, the emotional impact of how I delivered that information. And, and I've unintentionally emotionally hurt a lot of people just by being flat out and, and you know, uh, uh, oh God, what's the word? Just terse, I guess, is probably a good adjective there. Here's what needs to be done. Step one, step two, step three. I don't have time for anything else. Fix the problem. Let's get on it. Go. And while the market may not give a shit about your feelings, I've learned that good leadership has to. You, you can't just treat your people like machines. It doesn't work that way. Um, you've really got to understand the impact of asking them to work harder, to stay later, to put that extra time in, to sacrifice family time. And in learning for myself the impact of that and growing my own business and sort of weighing the impacts on my personal life of the business decisions that I had to make, I think I have a lot better understanding now of what it's like to be them in that scenario when they're being tasked to, to go beyond, you know, and especially when it comes to, to more junior employees who, who are on a growth track, I don't want to be the person that makes you leave development because you're like, you know what? Developer managers are fucking assholes and I don't ever want to work in that industry again. I don't want to squash people's creative growth. I don't want to squash their passion. Uh, never shit on someone else's joy. You know, and, mm -hmm. and so I've mm -hmm. I've really like had to to like consciously do some some self evaluation and some personal inventory. I think is the the trendy phrase to to determine how I talk to people. And and so that I, I'm I'm very flattered that you said that that was one of the things that you respected about me because it's something that I've consciously had to build and work on and mm -hmm. learn. I had to unlearn being an asshole because that's how I was trained. 
And it, it kind of becomes tricky, right? Because I think um, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption, and you guys tell me what you think. But I think for for those who grew up in that source of that sense of having to be resourceful, as I mentioned earlier, our work identifies us hardcore because it's a place we can get immediate feedback. Because chances are we didn't get a lot of feedback. The, the feedback was the market doesn't give a shit, right? But I think that you know, as you grow and as you're leading people, you know, your business can never grow beyond your thermostat for growth itself. And I think that um, you know, as we're having that discussion, conflict is is definitely needed. But that sense of feedback and that validation, I think, is a critical force. You know, because it says more so than anything, I think most people struggle with the idea is that when somebody's telling you that your work sucks, you're not working hard enough. What we're actually hearing in that moment sometimes is you're a terrible human being, and that becomes the thing that you carry. Because then you're like, well, if I'm a terrible human being, like, what's my real value? So I like the message that you're sharing about the market doesn't give a shit. And I think I like to phrase it in the idea of divorce your sense of personal self-worth from your market value. Because you can kind of explore that avenue. And I think that um, I would love for, for somebody who's a little bit further down the road in age and experience for me, you know, as, as you know, leading these businesses and as you're making decisions to get involved in things, how are you employing a level of bringing your creative, that grittiness, who you are at this moment in time to those ventures um, and what excites you about them? Well, you know, I, I think that at this point, it's not as much that I'm bringing that grittiness to the conversations, I guess. I'm trying to figure out how to describe this well. That brand equity is how people have gotten to know me. And that brand equity, I think, also helps make it more valuable for them when they discover that I can be a trusted advisor, that they can share those soft parts of themselves with Mm -hmm. me, that I'm not going to shit on it, that I'm not going to chew it up. I think, you know, when you approach someone who's gruff and grouchy by nature, especially if you've gotten stinged before, I mean, some of my business partners have called me early before I've had all my coffee and we've had some shitty conversations because I can be a grouchy son of an asshole, you know. Um, (laughs) but because that's the framework, I think it makes it feel that much more valuable when I'm willing to take some time and really listen and and treat them with mutual respect, especially if they think of me as someone sort of above them in the business mm-hmm. community. You know what I mean? And and I talk about this when when I, you know, I, I had this concept that I, you know, one hand up and one hand down. I'm always trying to reach that next level. I'm always trying to hit that person that I think is the leader at the next level up to make that connection, to learn from them, things along that line. But along the way, I'm also reaching down to the people who perceive themselves to be below me in the space and trying to lift them up here as well. And I think that that, that contrast is what makes it so great. They may see me in a, a networking meeting and be like, man, that guy's kind of a dick. I mean, it wasn't like he was really an asshole, but he was just so <laughs> abruptly like straightforward. And then we go one-on-one. And they're like, wow, that guy really took the time and listened to what I had to say and cared about my thoughts and feelings on the topic. And he gave me some pointers and he disagreed with some things, but it was clear that, you know, he was disagreeing with a concept, not devaluing me as a human. My greatest skill has nothing to do with technology or creativity or writing or anything else. It's purely relationship building. That's the number one thing that's drove my business growth over the last two decades. It's a constant theme in every conversation that we're having, you know, especially people involved in our community is this idea of relationship building. And so I want to, you know, before we go into the lightning round, maybe discuss this topic a little bit, which is the idea of relationships, because from the outside, again, there's this contrast that's super interesting is 
very outspoken, wildly opinionated, have you know the idea of I'm going to tell you exactly how it is in that moment. And there's also this really soft in the center kind of individual, which is super interesting. How do you find that you build relationships best? And what what was the switch that flipped for you? And how how early on was it? Because I think I'm envisioning this tension between being you know somebody with a chip on your shoulder, kind of do, doing your thing, and then all of a sudden, some t- at some point in time, you realize that relationships were the key for growth. You know, uh, funnily enough, the Entrepreneur Social Club, uh, Nova 535, shout out Michael Novillo, downtown St. Pete, was a big part of that. I was I was so against going to a networking group. I mean, you know, I'm like, oh God, is there anything I want to do less than hang around with a bunch of other business people <laughs> trying to hand me their cards, which I don't give a shit about, and pitch me on products or services that I can't use. And so I didn't take it seriously at all when I first started. You know, I was just like, okay, well, we have to go there because... We have business partners who run this, but I'm mostly going to hang out at the bar and, you know, just get hammered. And I showed up, hey, you know. Um, But, you know, over the course of months to years of attending there, all of a sudden that became a primary source of income for me because people knew me. The relationships that I built in that club were making people say my name to other people every time someone asked a question about something that I could fulfill. And then as I started to reach the peak in that first business that I was building, I I realized that I was in a place now where if I needed some third-party resource or asset, I had somebody I could talk to. I had somebody I could call on. In fact, probably somebody that I know, you know, And, and that's so meaningful, you know, when you're making referrals, when you're making business connections, when you're building ad hoc teams for multi business projects. Um, having that community of people around you with resources where you have a pre-existing relationship, you know and trust each other, like it's fundamental to, to being able to execute quickly. And so I was able to take on bigger projects than I would have been able to and get into things that I normally would have had no access to because I could quickly spin up a team of all the relevant people to help pull this off, you know? And that's just been huge to me. And then people started realizing that I was a referral source because every bit of business that came into me that I didn't want or wasn't a good match, I was sending it out without asking for anything in return. And so that just deepened our connection as well. Love it. I love it. And this is the first conversation. I mean, of course, there's so much we could dive into and we could definitely pop into it. But now we get to kind of flip the script a little bit. It's typically, Jinx, you're the one at, uh, asking these questions, but I'm going to pass over to Robin to hit you with the lightning round. Woohoo. Buckle your seatbelt. Um, <laughs> so you know how this goes. Don't think it too hard. Answer from your gut. And uh, oh, let's do the lightning round. Cocktail of choice. Dirty vodka martini with three olives and two pickled onions. So specific. <laughs> Love it. What is your go-to de-stress method? Violent video games wherein I rack up high body counts. <laughs> pew, pew. Apple or PC? Oh, PC across the board. High five, my friend. It's you and me versus the world. Uh, <laughs> peanut butter, crunchy or smooth? Um, I, I prefer smooth. Yeah. I'm a smooth okay. kind of guy. Smooth kind of guy. Inside or outside? In what context? Whatever first context pops into your head. Ooh, I live in my cave in front of my computer. So I think inside ring, rings my bell. Beatles or Stones? 
Ooh, God, I hate that dichotomy. I really do. I like both of them for entirely different reasons. I think Beatles, the better pop band and the Stones are the better a proto-punk band. Nice. Surrealism or Dadaism? Ooh, God. Oh. Now, see, my art style is surreal, but my philosophy is Dada. So <laughs> you're giving me some real hard ones here. I, I don't come soft. lean for surrealism just because that's probably what I work with more. Uh, but I have some love for Dada. <laughs> and finally, to wrap this all up, give us your favorite insult. Oh, God, you're probably a Trump supporter, aren't you? <laughs> nice. And we are officially apolitical here at the Infect My Business show. <laughs> the opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the organization. Just kidding. Awesome. So, listen, everybody, you got a chance to get some insight into Christopher Jinx Jenkins. Our chief strategy officer over here at Unfuck My Business. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you, getting to know you a little bit. There's so many rabbit holes we can go down. We spent so many hours discussing these things. But just to recap for you listening right now, it's important, obviously, that as you've heard from many leaders within our community and continue to hear in the content within, relationships are the key. And you heard from an individual who was talking about not just relationships externally to others that furthered his businesses his career, his sense of quality of life, but also the relationship within, which I think is very often completely neglected. The idea behind the two minds of creativity and technical expertise and learning how to bring those two things together for a common goal. Pain within here is a radically vulnerable perspective and obviously a very intentional individual. And so it's important for you to recognize that he has a guiding philosophy of the market, doesn't give a shit about your experiences, but... He's also very focused on understanding what drives individuals. So it's important to be hard on the markets, but understand people from a very soft level. So that's incredible. So with that said, we want to make sure that if you do want to connect with Chris, all of his info, it will be in the show notes or in the description below. So we can grab that for you as well. And if you're not a member of the Unfuck My Business community on Facebook, make sure you go there as well. We want to talk to you again soon with another member or some other valuable information. So with that being said, we'll see you next Tuesday. What the fuck are you waiting for? Take what you learned in this episode and do something with it. You'll find all the links and resources we talked about in our show notes for this episode. Go to unfuckmybusiness.com to subscribe to the show.